So we're making our way through um, a series on worship, Songs from the Heart, uh, Paul's catchy, catchy series name, he comes up with these catchy series names, Songs from the Heart, and we've been working our way through um, Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, a later edition from Christ in the New Testament, with all your mind and with all your strength. And this week we reach the point of strength. That's where we're going to focus on strength. And I kind of want to sit it in a bit of context. We've gone through this idea of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in some respects, you come to this and you think, right, we divvy this up into different parts of the body, heart, and it sits in, in neat little chunks. But I've been reading around this, and I think, I think that's, that sits and that works, but it's helpful for us to realize that um, this is kind of a growing sentence. And, and, and it helped me to sort of think of it in terms of concentric circles. And that's not a word I'm familiar with. That is a word I came across and found. But this idea, you know, circles get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the point of the circle that we're on now is the point that hits the outside world. So we get to this point, just to run through heart, soul, mind, and strength. We get to this point in our hearts where we've got this conviction about God. This is what worship looks like. It's deep in here. Our hearts have been moved. And and I guess we know that that's an organ that pumps blood around, but when we read about it in Bible times, this is the very center of your being, the very very soul, the thing that initiates all your thoughts and all your being. So it starts there, and then it spreads into your mind, into your soul, and then we get to this point that we're going to look at today where we realize that actually worship occupies your very being. And I felt a bit spacey when I said that, but this is the truth. Starts there, makes its way out to the tangible bits of ourselves. So we will, worship is everything. We will worship by our actions. We will worship by our body language. We will leave a tangible legacy for people to observe at work. People will physically see us worshiping God at work. That is worship. The kind of vocabulary that we use, that is worship. How you physically respond to your kids when you don't, get too angry, when you show them God, all this sort of stuff, worship, stretches out into the very person that we are. And so there's a few, just so you, you know, I'm not making this up, just to explore the translations a little bit. In the Greek, the translation is power, another translation is might or veriness. Um, but I think a helpful one is the, the Aramaic. It's not often I get to the Aramaic, but I'm in the Aramaic now, and that's wealth. That's how they translate it, loving with all your wealth, all your stuff, all your possessions. So it's this idea, when we think about strength today, that it occupies every single bit of us. Here's a phrase I want you to hang on to. Every last drop of you, every last little bit you've got left, which is why, which is why we're going to look at Job. Because we've heard already, as no sort of brought, brought it out, this guy worships God in a way, and that's what it is, worship on his knees, but he worships God in a way that is every last little drop of his personality. I wonder if we could just bob the text up on the screen, because it's just an awesome story. And what you need to remember when you look at a story like this is that these are often um, oral stories. These are often word of mouth. I mean, we've got them written down for us, but there weren't as many books, there weren't as many pens. I don't know if they had, I think they had ink in those days, but you know, it wasn't all written down. These stories were passed on. So even the very first line of this book of Job is just, it's It's supposed to capture your imagination. And we read that and we think, us, no idea. Job, I think I know a little bit about Job. But when you read about us in the Bible, that says from the east. 
everything associated with the East, and there is lots to know about the East. And the guy, Job, is a great man. So these two things already. So are you familiar with an Eastern? Good, you shouldn't be. It's not a thing. But you're familiar with a Western, right? You know what a Western is. And when you, get, when you read about a, well, an Eastern, imagine a Western, cowboys and guns and horses. An Eastern's like that, but there's more turbans and camels, okay? And a bit more mystery as well. So it's like that, okay? So that's, what, that's how I want us to capture this idea. And, and we're familiar with Westerns. When I thought about this as an illustration, I thought, we're quite a young, cool church. Are, we, am I, are people going to be familiar with Westerns? If you don't know what a Western is, film for, middle of the day, they're on all the time, Westerns. And you get this scene in your mind when you come to a Western. You know, you're gonna, you know what you're going to get, actually. You know what you are sitting down for. There's goodies and baddies. There's opportunities to make great wealth. There's opportunities to lose stuff. And everything's kind of black and white. You know, there's the good guys. You don't, you know, films can be quite subtle now. You can watch them for an hour and still not know who the good guys are. You put a, you put a Western on, oh, that's the good, it's the good looking guy with the blue eyes. That's the good guy. The bad guy's got, you know, he's spitting and he's got a gun in his hand. That's the bad guy. It's really obvious. Well, this, this story of Job is like that. And, this, and there's this setting of this land of us. And, and Neil read for us before the Chaldeans and the, I've forgotten the other guys that are in here somewhere. These, these raiding parties would come in all the time. And Nick just nicked stuff. And that, that was the reality of life. It was like a, like a western, but it was in the east. That's, that's the story. And this guy, Job, is a guy that makes it in the, in the wild east. He's a guy that hits it big time. And when we say hits it big time, he hits it massive. And, it, and it, it kinda, we, he's kind of lauded. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. This guy had it. This guy had it all, and, and you, you kind of, as, as you, if you just cast your eyes down there about his stuff, this is the point in the Eastern where, do you know, in the start of the Western, um, often as, as opening sort of titles would come out, it would sort of pan over this landscape, and you would see the good guy, the cowboy's ranch, and all his stuff. And, and somehow, and that, that's kind of how this pans out, we get to see all Job's stuff, and we get to see that, man, he's not a bad guy with a load of stuff, he's a good guy with a load of stuff. It also says that he was holy, like he's properly holy. So he's a, he's, he's a guy that's made it in the wild east and he's made it doing good things. He's always, almost, in almost OTT kind of fashion, what, what does it say about him? That he goes after his kids have had a party, he's so blessed, you know, his kids have had a party on the off chance that they've not been good, he offers a sacrifice for his kids. This guy is an awesome guy. He's the greatest man in the east. He's the best cowboy in the West, he's got it all. And then there's the best meanwhile in any story you're ever going to read anywhere. There's this awesome little meanwhile. Maybe you need to flick on the screen on the text, that would be awesome. The meanwhile cuts to the scene in heaven. And I want us, it's a really useful text. It's a rare glimpse of the glory of God and the courts of heaven. But it gives us a real insight into just what's going on in heaven. And God is holding court. And he's saying, consider this man, Job. And there's, and there's Satan, the accuser. That's, the, that's how Satan is translated. And that, it's interesting that the way that he's portrayed is just this guy that comes in and out. There's, there's heaven's courts, there's God holding court, and there's Satan, literally the bad guy at the back, coming in and out, causing problems. And Satan says, this guy, God says of Job, this guy's amazing. There is nobody like this guy. And Satan says, 
Of course he's amazing. Of course he worships you with all his heart. He's got everything. Why would he not worship you with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul and all his strength? And God says, okay. And this is, I think this is up there with the hardest verses to get your head around anywhere in the Bible. God says, okay. And maybe this is the first question you'll ask God when you get to heaven. He says, okay, you've got a free hand. You've got a free hand with this guy. And I'm telling you, he's still going to love me and worship me at the end of this. And so the next day, Job wakes up. You think you've had a bad day. Cast your mind back to the worst day you've had in your, in your life. And Job has the worst day. And as, it's funny, you read this book. I've read this book at different points in my life. And I remember the first time I read it, I thought I knew about tragedy. I thought I knew about life. I was 16, I had spots and I'd been dumped. And I thought I knew about all that sort of stuff. And actually, you read this story now this desperately sad story now. And I remember reading it and remember thinking, that could never have happened. It's just far-fetched, actually. But now, when I look, when I, look, when I pan my eyes and I watch the news, when I, when I see the news in this country, I think, no, this, is, this happens to people. This level of tragedy. What happens to Job? His world is completely crushed. What news does he get? Messengers come in one after the other, almost just to emphasize just the extent of the horrific day that he's having. His cattle has been stolen, his houses are burned, his, tra- his children are tragically all killed. It's just the worst day ever. Oh, this, this great man, this man at the top of his game, the good guy, the guy with everything's world just comes crushing down around his feet. And if you go on to read the story, you should go on to read the story. His friends come, he loses respect, he loses his home. You know, where's, where's, his, where's Job's future? What's he got to look forward to? Where's his joy? Goes on to read about a guy who's just ends up with sores all over his body, sitting in the dust of his house, crying. This guy's got nothing. And then we read these lines that, re- that make real sense of why we need to love God with all our strength to bring him worship. At this, Job got up, tore his clothes, tore his robe, shaved his head. That was what they did to mourn in these days. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And then a sentence that doesn't seem to make sense with what he said before. Blessed be, I'm saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, or I think it says, may the name of the Lord be praised. That's just because I've grown up with it. May the name of the Lord be praised. He falls on his knees in, in, in the face of the worst day, in the face of what seems like the absence of any sense of God whatsoever, and outpours this beautiful, broken, strength-filled, every last drop of your life, worship. And we sort of stand back in awe of it and say, if half of that stuff happened to me, I don't know that I would be there. There's a couple of things I want us to learn as we go through this story. And the first one is the question that we all ask, and it's the question that your mate at work will ask, who's an atheist or who's just not a believer. He will say, well, where on earth is God in all this? You, got, you, you, send, him, you send your mate from work, you say, right, I want you to read this book. He comes away and he says, I just don't believe that there's a God in this. And, and that's, that's the kind of storyline that he will look for. And one of the things that we're faced with often when we read the Bible 
is kind of the storyline that we chase after. We chase after, is there a God? Is it possible that there's a God? How can he let this happen? That's not the prevailing storyline of the book of Job. The prevailing storyline of the book of Job is God is watching how the people behave. And we look for the narrative of where's God in all this? How is, how is it possible that it's God? That's not what the book is explaining. The book is saying God watches how the people will behave. God observes the worshippers to see how they are doing. I just, I think it's an amazing scene when we cut to heaven and God draws the attention, try and imagine this as best you can with our human minds, God draws the attention of the angelic beings, Satan himself, you know, and there's all sorts going, there's all sorts to grab your attention on earth, isn't there? There's so many stories to grab your attention on earth and God gathers the council of angels together and he says, hang on, come on, this is, you need to see this, you need to see this, and he says, look at this man Job. Of all the stories going on, God is occupied by the character of his worshippers. That's what he's focused on. It's really interesting, I think. What makes the news? What you see on the front of your papers when you read them nowadays. It's never ever going to be something about a good person's character. That's never going to make the news. That never makes headlines or anybody worshipping anything. Nobody reads about that. That's not used. We read about Mr. Trump. We read about wars. We read about tragedy. We read about operations, all, you know, operations to make yourself look better, all the rest of this stuff. But we're not going to read about character. And yet, in heaven, the angels are transfixed by this story. I want to remind you, I feel like the Bible reminds us, in the midst of our struggle, when it seems, when it seems perhaps like God might be absent, God is watching the character of his people. The character of his worshippers is a massive story in heaven. God says, in the midst of a world of millions of events, somebody here on earth, somebody here at Christchurch, worships God with an honest heart, and God says, man, look at this guy. This is the story. I want to encourage you in your struggle that the eyes of heaven are on the worshippers of God. So why, why strength? I want us just to drop back to the start of, um, start of this story of Job. And because sometimes, and we need, we need to acknowledge this, because there's, there's two bits of, there's, there are two bits of worship in chapter one. There's the worship on his knees, but there's the, there's the worship at the start. Job's life is commended by God. And uh, when, I, when I read about Job, I think there's a bit of the Ned, do you know Ned Flanders? Ned Flanders, some of you watch Simpsons will know Ned, Ned Flanders. Yeah, there's some people going, yes, I watch Simpsons every day, religiously. Yeah, Ned Flanders, like, holy guy, goody two-shoes guy. There's a bit of the Ned Flanders, I think, about Job in the way that, in the way that he chases after his kids and he, he makes sacrifice for them at, just in case they've done something wrong. And the reality is kind of between the lines of the story. Job's life is so blessed. His kids are so good. They've not done anything wrong. This is kind of a tip of the iceberg moment. This is actually Job's so awesome. He's just ridiculously awesome. And he's ridiculously holy. And you kind of get, at least when I read this passage, it's, it's easy to see how the, how the worship will happen. You can see Job looking wistfully across at his wife with adoring eyes. And him looking out to the side at the thousands of cattle that he's got and the acres of land that he's got. And then the praise for God would come quite easily, right? Might require a bit of strength. Sometimes worship can be like that. 
and it's okay. Worship, worship can be that moment when you walk into church and the singing, and sometimes here we are so blessed, the singing's just, it picks you up. And you've had a day at home where you've been out in the sun all day and your son's got that nice sun-kissed feel. You've got your new top on. You've had a pay rise or this talk about a pay rise and you're thinking, right, I can go and get that new car now. And then you get into church and then Andy's rocking it on the bass and you feel like, I'm not normally a dancer, but I'm just, this is amazing. This is really moving me. And then the words hit you and it's like, man, yes, this is amazing. Life's good. Worship's really easy. And what I need to say is, what we need to acknowledge, I think, is that is worship. If, if, if your heart is in tune with the Holy God, if it's been melted by God's love, if, if all the avenues, all the different facets of your life are pointing to God, if every last drop of your life is heading there, even in the awesome, brilliant good times, that is authentic worship. This is worship. God says it, doesn't he? He says, you know, with a guy with all the money, he says, you know, look at this guy. That is worship. But the reality of our lives, most of our lives, is that at some point, that sort of worship passes. It's funny when you get a bit older. I'm not that old, but I'm a bit older. And you look back and you think youth is going to be your friend forever. And all of a sudden, it looks back at this tiny space in your life. You think, wow, when did that happen? How did that come to an end? The good times. Life changes, doesn't it? And we get this brilliant story in Job where life changes massively. Sometimes when life gets tough, we find ourselves in the same boat as Job. We're on our knees. It's not as easy to sing and clap and dance. Our worship doesn't come that way. Somehow it's changed. Worship, worship looks a lot different. Sometimes worship is just... You know, and let's, let's be honest, life, it gets really tough. We've got this story in the Bible that kind of helps us on our way with this, but we know it already. Life gets really tough. People go through rubbish stuff, difficult times, hard to get your head around times. And in those times, sometimes your worship is just, I'm going to get up the next day and I'm not going to speak badly of God today. I'm not going to let my kids or my people around me hear me speak badly of God today. Sometimes, sometimes it's keeping on praying. It's remembering that you're somebody who talks to God. That is worship. Sometimes it's just not becoming a hater. It's still seeing hope in God. The kind of worship that you'll be in tune with in these difficult times are a lot, is a lot different, and it will need every last drop of strength. But it's still worship. If your heart is moved by a holy God, if every avenue of your life is heading towards him, these gritted teeth, difficult prayers, these I'm just going to face the next day mindsets, these are worshipful to a holy God. And when we consider life like this, when we consider the story of Job like this, we get all of a sudden why God commands us in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 to love the Lord your God, not just with all your heart and soul, but he commands us to love him with all our strength, because we realize that this is going to take a little bit of resolve, to quote the Foo Fighters, a little bit of resolve and a little bit of effort. And all of a sudden, 
we understand, and it, it reads quite an odd addition, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, that makes sense. And strength, what strength? And all of a sudden we're like, yeah, I get why strength is added. And all of a sudden we understand why it takes might and effort to turn the convictions of your heart into worship. If we journey with Job, we see the ongoing struggle with Job. And it's worth, it's worth just reading a couple more chapters because if you like poetry and drama, it's such a beautiful story. But as we journey with Job, and we'll, we'll come back to it next week further down the line with the story, we see how this battle pans out. We see a man who has loved God in his heart and he's made that resolve, that position in his heart, and yet the narrative of his life is so opposed to this choice he's made in his heart, it almost doesn't connect. The reality of him living with sores and the death of his kids and the tragedy of his life makes the resolutions he's had about loving an honest God just seem so difficult to comprehend. Here's what he says in Job chapter 6. What strength have I that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? The circumstances in his physical life scream that the convictions of his heart are wrong. How do you worship a creator when your flesh is failing? How do you trust God for the future when your offspring die? How do you find a song of praise and thankfulness through bitterness and tears? We know a bit about this, don't we? We know the, different, we know the difficulties of the reality of living in the body and the strong conviction that God is our Lord and Savior. And we know how sometimes those paths are different. Jesus knew it. He said it to the disciples just before he was to be crucified. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sees his disciples around him. He's asked them to go and pray. And he, but he, know, he knows the reality of their week, the week that they've just had. He knows the trauma that is in their minds. And what does he say to them when he, when he asks them to, to pray? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what do they do? They fall asleep. And in order to praise God and to be an aid to Christ and to worship him, they were going to need all of their strength. Because to pray, and you find this out when you pray late at night, you've got to be awake. <laughs> they were going to need all of their strength. Not just their convictions, they were going to need all of their strength. And Jesus looks at them and says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We know this, I think. We know it in all sorts of odd ways as well. I, I watched a documentary the other night. It was, you know, they're all on all the time about how we need to eat healthy how we need to cut down on sugar. And it can be quite dramatic. And I was very impacted. I was like, man, yeah, this is right. I eat a lot of chocolate. And this, you know, this year in really clever ways, just the damage that sugar does to your body and all the salt does to your body. And I'm like, yeah, tick, I eat that. Yeah, tick, I eat that. And I came to a real conviction. I was like, do you know what? This is, gonna, this is a life-changing documentary for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretty much just, I'm going to end that and I'm going to end that. And this, is, this is where I'm at. And my, my heart had gone like this way. I was moved by the documentary. And the very next day, I walked past a sani shop and that, the smell of a bacon sandwich. I am, I just crumble, I have nothing. I just, I smell the bacon sandwich and it's like, and, and, and there's a, like, almost like a voice inside my head. This voice is competing inside my head. This voice has said, we've talked about this. We've said we're not, we're heading in a different direction. We've made a resolve. We've committed to this. We're into this. And then my stomach just says, forget that. This is a, let's get involved with this bacon sandwich. This is a good moment in, in our lives. And it's like this, this, the body and the soul and the heart kind of 
move to one side. We get it when we try and exercise. You get into your lycra gear or your, I don't get into lycra gear, I get into shorts because I'm a man. And you get into all that sort of stuff and then you get ready to go and then parts of your body will literally say, you're a fool, Gibson. You're 38, give it up. We don't need to do this. We've got nothing to prove anymore. And then, and then your soul just says, but we've talked about this. We are convicted that we need to try and stay healthy, fight the fat for as long as we can. And that happens and you've got this conviction and the body and the soul kind of pull each other apart. The same thing happens with us and worship when we come to church. The very same thing happens. We have this deep-rooted conviction. Sometimes it gets really deep, so deep we can't see it, but it's there. We come to church and we want to worship. We've made this resolve. This is a good thing to do. We get this. And yet we sit down, we sing the songs, and because of the physical reality of life, we don't connect with our heart and our soul. We can, I've sat through sermons, not in the last two years, before, way before, and I've thought, I've left the iron on, and that's been it. And I've not, I've not ever got back in the room. Do you know what I mean? Or I've had issues with this person, and I've just beamed with hatred. It's like the physical reality of your life means that you cannot connect your strength with your heart and your soul. And as we call to worship God with every inch of our being, with every bit of our strength, we remember this idea that, we, that it's the tangible bits of us, this strength is this a bit that goes out into the world. When we try and worship God in that way in our work or when we teach people, when, we, when we're joining us and we're hammering nails in or when we speak to people, the everyday physical realities of life, even though it's a conviction in our heart, just gets kind of smothered and swallowed up and it dissipates and it disappears. How do we find this strength? How do we make this strength something that's pure and it's not just a robotic, dogmatic kind of response to God. It's not just something that's works-based. How do we not just kick back and think, yeah, Job is awesome? How do we actually join in with that kind of worship? How do we not just sit back and admire that? How do we join with that? The Apostle Paul describes it as a secret. He says, I know the secret to strength. And it's in Philippians 4, 12 and 13. And he kind of, very helpfully for me, <laughs> pulls all these concepts together. And gives us a way to find a pure strength. A way, that, a way that we can make it and worship God and pull these things together. He says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What is he able to do? What is the secret? He's able to take the awesome good times and level them out with the awesome bad times and raise Christ above both and keep him there. He said, that's the secret. Whatever's going on in your life, make Jesus higher than all that stuff. That is the secret to being content. And Paul does this. And it's this magical secret. It's like, yeah, I can do this. I can find the strength to make this thing work, even in the trauma. My worship can be pure because I put Christ above all these things. The convictions of his heart and soul and realities of the flesh are connected together, and God is worshipped. 
And if we can do that, if we can keep Christ in this exalted place, despite the horrors of life and the blessings of life, we might be able to just about find a way, find the strength to bring God worship and say with Job, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And if we can say this, then we're worshiping him with all our strength.